So let me get into it, okay? Um, recap. Esther, as of last week, Esther has approached the king as she feels like she needs to. The Jews are facing a desperate time, annihilation. She's in a position. She's acknowledged that. And now she's approaching the king. She has a dinner with him. We saw that last week and didn't say anything yet. And then she says, well, he, he says, what do you want? I'll give it anything you want. And she could have asked, but she didn't. She said, just come back to another dinner. And so she creates another dinner where she wants to have the king and Haman come to another dinner. Between dinners, at the very first part of chapter 6, the king has uh, a sleepless night. He can't sleep. And so he wakes up and he realizes, Mordecai saved my life. He kept the coup from killing me. And so he, asks, he brings Haman in and he asks Haman an interesting question. What shall I do to the man that the king delights to honor? Well, Haman, fully believing that it's him, uh, puts a whole parade together of being on a horse and robes and, and basically creating a conqueror-type celebration for himself. And he puts all the plans together and he says, I think the king should do this and this and this. And it's a big parade. It's a big thing where he gets all this honor. And then the king says, that sounds really great. I want you to lead Mordecai through the whole thing. Of course, Haman wants to kill Mordecai and all of his people, and now he has to parade him through and give him honor. So he does that. And then he goes home after the parade. It says that he covers his head in shame, and uh, he's in, he is uh, uh, very, very sad that he has had to do this thing. And his family starts talking to him about what is that? What is going on? And he's trying to explain to them what happened to him. And at the very same time, even his own uh, sort of wizards, if you will, wise men who counsel him, even said that if you come against Mordecai, you're going to lose. Well, in that very moment, while he's explaining all of this to his family, the king's servants come to get him and take him to this dinner that Esther has prepared for the king and for him. And so now he's being ushered, after this humiliating experience, he's being ushered into this dinner. And I just have to say, this dinner will not be like the first one. This dinner, an atomic bomb will go off, okay? And Esther will land the goods, and it will go off, and it will reverse everything in the Persian Empire. And that's what we're going to witness in our text today. So in verse 14, when it says that while they were talking with him, in other words, while he was talking to his family about the whole ushering Mordecai through with honor and doing all the parade. He's talking to his family. That's what it's talking about, okay? So Esther chapter 6, I'm going to read verse 14 down to 7, 10. And I'm looking at the time just laughing because uh, y'all just give up. Just give up. Uh, it's, I'm going to do my best. All right, so here, here we go. Verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. 
the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And you say to us through the Apostle Paul in Romans that everything was written for our instruction and our benefit. And so right now, Lord, as we, your people, look through the lenses of the gospel back to this, this, this time period and this historical account with Esther, uh, Holy Spirit, give us sight and wisdom and instruction from your word. Make us what you want us to be. Take us where you want us to go. We submit to you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we finalize the series. So I'm going to just basically conclude the book for you. At this dinner, here's what takes place. Esther reveals that she's a Jew. Big risk. She takes the risk. Haman, she says, Haman has misled you to create an unjust and oppressive law. And she appeals to the king to counter his decree. Um, a king in the Persian, once a, a king makes a decree, it is irreversible. Uh, you can't nullify it. You just, you just have to go with it. But he can counter it. And he does, and she's appealing to him to counter this decree in the Persian Empire. Well, the king hears that he has been misled by Haman to do this horrible thing. And, the, and, and then because of his execution of the, the decree, it'll kill his own queen. And he's mad and he's confused. He doesn't know what to do. He needs to think, right? So he goes out to the garden. He says, I need to think. <laughs> what do I do in this moment? Well, he comes back. Actually, he comes back into the room and he finds um, Haman sitting there, uh, basically lay, uh, prostrate on the couch with Queen Esther. Now, in the Persian Empire, it's illegal to be alone with any part of the king's harem, much less to be touching them uh, on a couch, right? Um, and so when the king walks in, he sees this happening, immediately he thinks this is worthy of execution. And what the, the language gives you is, is they covered his face. In other words, he's condemned. That's what it means. In the Persian Empire, that he's condemned. He cannot look at the king. He, can't, he doesn't deserve to look at the king. They wrapped his face, basically, and hauled him, hauled him off. And as the king is trying to think about what to do, he has to be executed. Here, this uh, servant of the king says, oh, by the way, he himself put up a gallow. Now, a gallow in the Persian Empire was basically like a big power pole for you and I, okay? A big wooden power pole. And what they would do is one of two things. They would either hang 
a criminal on that and leave that criminal up there for everyone to see publicly. Like this is what happens to people who break the law and disobey the king and that kind of thing. But the other thing that they would also do is to impale them onto that pole as well and leave them up there to die slowly for everyone to see. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like an ex- uh, a cross, right? Well, guess what? The cross is not unique to the Roman Empire. This is what Persians did to execute people. They impaled them on poles publicly. Um, and so Mordecai, I mean, uh, Mordecai, the, the Haman prepared this execution uh, construction for Mordecai. Um, and yet, here's the king. The king says, that sounds fitting for him to get his own. And Haman is hung on his own gallow that he, that he had built. Now, the remaining chapters of this book, um, if I just sort of give you a summary of it, um, he cannot nullify the decree, so he issues a different decree, and the different decree is that Jews can defend themselves. There is a particular day, and you remember the original decree, there's a particular day where anybody in the, uh, the whole Persian Empire, if you, if you want, go and kill all the Jews and take all of their, their wealth for your own, and you'll probably be paying a tax to come back to the treasury to pay for the whole ordeal, okay? That decree was issued, that's done, it can't be stopped. But another decree was issued that says the Jews can now defend themselves against all, all of the attacks that are going to happen. So the death of Haman didn't end it. It might have ended the treasury being filled with, with uh, the money to pay for it, um, but it didn't end it. So now the later chapters are talking about how this day comes and all of the enemies mount up against the Jews. The Jews prepare themselves to defend themselves against it. And what ends up happening is the Jews wipe out all of their enemies that come to attack them on that one day, including Haman's sons. They defend themselves, and there's an interesting phrase in chapter 9, actually later, I'm not sure if it's chapter 9 or not, but it says, it says that they did not take the plunder of those they defeated. And what that is, is that's basically a statement from the Jews for all of the world in the Persian Empire to say this was 100% self-defense. We did not do this in aggression toward another person and take their property. We did it in total self-defense. And so, in other words, we were just in defense of ourselves, and this happened justly in the Persian Empire. And at the end in Romans 9, I mean, uh, at the end on chapter 9, it says, And the Lord gave all the Jews rest for their enemies. Now think about that. I'm going to actually come, come, back to them, come back to that. But here's what I want to ask, and I want to make three points, and I want to make them as fast as I can. And in summary, what's the moral of the story? As we look back to Esther through the gospel lenses, What's the moral of the story in this wrap-up of what's taking place here? One, number one, pride will destroy our lives. Pride destroys a life. What's the proverb? Pride comes before the fall. The ultimate example in God's word is Haman. He is case and point, study in story form. This is what that proverb is talking about. And we see how pride took this man down and destroyed his life. The Bible teaches that every human being born in this world has pride and sin already in our hearts. You know, we like to say that power corrupts. Someone gets 
into power and they seem to be like a good guy and they get into power and all of a sudden they become a sick person and they do horrible things, right? Um, and so we say power corrupts. Well, that's not exactly accurate biblically. What we believe is true is a person already has pride in them that contains them, that can maybe be dormant even. But when they get into this position in the context, it exposes and grows in their hearts and the context draws it out to show it for what it is, and it takes them over, and they do things that are horrible. But all of us have pride in us. And here's the thing about pride. Pride is incredibly tough to see in ourselves. We can see it in others pretty clearly. But to see it in ourselves is really, really difficult. Pride is fundamentally self-absorption. That's what pride is. At your core, you're self-absorbed. C.S. Lewis said this, that pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Let me say that again. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is always asking, how will this affect me? How am I being honored? How am I being viewed? Pride is consumed with these types of questions. And we often notice pride in others in like self-aggrandizement where someone who brags about themselves all the time and you go, man, I can obviously see uh, pride here. But the inverse is also true, that people who have inferiority complexes are equally proud. They constantly compare themselves to others and are constantly feeling negative things about themselves. And they become people who are constantly self-abasing. They just keep talking bad about themselves, but they are both equally self-absorbed. The opposite of pride is humility. It's not thinking badly of yourself. As C.S. Lewis also said, it's not thinking about yourself at all. It's not thinking about yourself first. Humility is not self-abasement or self-aggrandizement. Many seek to eliminate pride in their hearts through religion. And yes, religious works can put a limit on pride, help you see it in yourself. But one danger in religion is that we seek to end pride, and yet through religion we foster and grow our pride, and we become religiously proud, which is the worst kind of pride according to Jesus. Now, how do you notice, right? If it's hard to see, how do you notice religious pride creeping up in your heart? Let me give you one excellent way to know it when you see it. Religious pride listens to sermons and thinks the whole time about that person that this would be really good for. You with me? Religious pride is Phariseeism. And the message there is God receives good people and he rejects the bad people. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God receives humble people and rejects the proud people. That's the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ says every human being is way worse than you think you are. And yet at the same time, you are loved more than you can ever imagine. And that free grace flowing from the cross and the person of Jesus is available to you to just drink and receive all the benefits and the goodness. You can't earn it because pride wants to earn it. Pride wants to have something to do with it. And it's only by grace. You have to be humble 
to receive the grace of God. Humility comes from knowing that you are the worst of sinners and truly believing that about yourself. And yet even while you were such a terrible sinner, Jesus considered you worth the suffering and death it took to show you his love. So your value is infinite. But yet you're very sinful. And Jesus says it's worth it. It's worth it. You're so loved, and yet you're so sinful. But humility comes to us from the gospel that declares that we are deeply sinful and also deeply loved by God. The gospel gives us the ability to think of our own sins as planks and as the sins of others as specks. And we live in that. And we live in that. Secondly, we reap what we sow. Haman received what he was seeking to get out, get, to give to another person. He got what he intended to give. And you reap and sow. Uh, Haman raised the gallows and, and hung on his own gallows. And, and, and this, is a, this is a sowing reaping principle that runs throughout all of the Bible and in the New Testament. Jesus even mentions it. One place where Jesus, uh, Jesus teaches, he says, do not judge lest you be judged. Yeah. By the measure you use, what? It'll be measured to you. What ruler do you want to use? How about we throw away the ruler, amen? Because I want God to throw away the ruler. The measure you use, we measure to you. you someone does something terrible, and all of a sudden you feel lofty. And you start looking down on them. And in that moment, you need to go, what about you? Let's turn that standard on you. How do you do? You know you don't make it. No compassion? No compassion will be shown to you. You see, it helps you, doesn't it, to think about life and how I treat people and the way I view other people. Paul said in Galatians 6, 7 to 10, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But from the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. What you give out, you will get. In life, we have choices to make. Jesus said, treat others the way you would want to be treated. What if the way you treat others is the way you ultimately are treated by others? How do you want to be treated? Make that the pattern of every interaction of your whole life every day. How do I want to be treated? What will I want to receive from others? And then let me be that. Let me be that and do that every day of my life. Choice by choice, obey Jesus, planting good seed. You've got to make choices in this life. Obey Jesus in every encounter, even when it defies logic and practicality. Let me give you an example. Jesus says, love your enemies. They want to do bad to you, but do good to them. Do good to your enemies. That's not practical, Lord. I need to show that when they hit, I hit harder to teach them a lesson not to hit. That's practical. That makes sense. Jesus says, love them. Do good to them. That's not practical. Obey them anyway. 
Do it anyway. Why? It's coming back to you. It's coming back. Trust Jesus in every interaction, every choice to do good. Last, God provides us rest from our enemies. Moral of the story in Esther. God came through and gave the Jews supernatural, sovereign, mysterious rest from all of their enemies. The moral of the story, that God has won for his people. God took a messy, scary, dark situation and flipped it on its head for the good and the victory of all of his people throughout the whole Persian Empire, all in a moment. All in a moment. Sound familiar? What's the darkest day in all of world history? The day the sinless Son of God was impaled on a cross in shame. And everybody that knew he was the Messiah could have said, where is God? And yet, in that very dark scary, confusing moment, God is doing the greatest, victorious, redemptive work for himself and against his enemies and all of us, all in the same collision of that moment. This is how God works. Sin, death, and hell were all defeated. They are your worst enemy. It may take you time to realize that, but that is your worst enemy. Sin, death, and hell, your worst enemy enemies. God defeated them all, stripping them all of their authority and power on the cross, all in a moment in the most confusing dark time. The New Testament says that Jesus is our rest. We sang it. We read it this morning. That was not planned. That text was not planned. I had no conversations with him saying, come to me. If you are weary, I will give you rest, rest for your souls. God is speaking this morning saying, You need rest for your soul. Guess who is our rest? Jesus is your rest. You come to Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. I am receiving the grace of God. He he sees me and loves me eternally and more than I can ever imagine. And I receive that love in the cross. Jesus paid for it for me. He did all the work to destroy my enemies and my greatest enemies. And I am safe from all my enemies, my worst enemies, all in him. And my soul is at rest. I am free I am forgiven. I can live free of no fear of death. Why? Because even death can't separate me from him. And he has defeated my enemies and I can live forever with him. I don't have to fear anything in this life. I don't even have to fear my enemies. I can have power to love them when they want to kill me. How? The cross. He is my rest. He fills my soul. He gives rest to my soul and empowers me to love supernaturally people. God gives rest to his people from all their enemies. Amen. And he did it through the cross, right? Nothing can separate you from God's love and promises to you. He has you, and in that truth, you can live fully and you can live the abundant life. You do not have to fear. God has defeated our ultimate enemies, and you can rest in Jesus. Receive Jesus and receive humility of spirit. Live in obedience to Jesus and reap the fruit that he promises in your life. Let your life be a life of dishing out goodness and hope to every interaction. It will come back to you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just trust that um, I know there's many, many moral of the story points that could be made here. And those three were just three that popped out to me. And I just trust that you'll take this attempt of preaching your word and spirit of God, that you would take it into our lives and our hearts and that you would empower us and instruct us and guide us right where you want us to go and use us in the way that you want to use us. So, Lord, and more than anything, I pray that all of our hearts today in this room would be satisfied deeply with your love for us and be full of your love and grace and your presence and that we would be happy. So thank you for the time that we were together to reflect on these things. And in this time of response, this is what we receive and we trust in and we sing and we pray and we do business with you right now. So take this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me all across the room? Let's sing and do business with the Lord. <laughs>